praise God for this opportunity to come together to worship, to worship our God, Christ. And today's message is from Matthew chapter 15, Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. I know it's a big passage for me and for you to endure, but it is an important passage, even though it's about vain worship. How would you bring a message to a congregation, message about the vain worship? Let me start with this question. How many of us today worship in, in vain? You know, Israel was caught up in pursuit of God's holiness. And God told Israel in Isaiah, why do you come to trample my courts? Your offerings are disgusting to me. Why do you bring sacrifices? They are useless. And when we are following Israel's example, who do not want to give the heart of God to God, but give everything but the heart, we are participating in a trivial worship. Worship that is costly, worship that requires a lot of energy, Worship requires a lot of sacrifice, but at the end of the day, it does not pay off with the goodness and mercy of God. It does not pay off with acceptance of God. Such worship offers only human praises. Such worship only offers temporary fame and temporary glory And if you are after those things, you are on the right path. But you see, if you think that you wanted to gain God's approval, the worship is absolutely different. The worship is coming from relying on Jesus Christ by faith. See, you might think that everything is all right. You might think that you're a child of God. You might think genuinely worshiping Lord, but you may be genuinely wrong. I have a wristwatch. And I thought I picked the right one, but this one is actually a good one. I'm a junkie for the watches. Every time we go and there's a watch, I wanted to look at the watches. Can't buy them all. I have about six pairs, way too much. But half of them are broken. And... They have a case and a hand and a face, and it has required parts, everything necessary to carry out the function of showing time. However, there's a problem in some of of them. The problem inside. The problem on the inside, the springs or something doesn't work that it doesn't show the time. And at the end of the day, that watch is useless. Absolutely useless. was designed to show time. And it could be shiny, it could be beautiful, but if it doesn't show time, it has a problem. And the problem is on the inside. We could say the heart of the problem is in the heart of the watch. There are plenty of people in the church today in religious circles that are like that watch. On the outside, looking fine, they appear to be religious, they appear to participate in good things, but they cannot function as they were designed by God. They cannot give God proper worship. 
They cannot truly worship God and bring glory to him because they have a problem that cannot be readily and easily seen. They have a problem with their heart. Now, the fact of the matter is that I do not know who has the problem in this congregation. I do not know who is in, in this room is redeemed and who is merely religious. In fact, I would venture to say that some people in this room do not even know their problems of their own heart. Some may think that they are redeemed when in fact they still be lost in sin. Now, while we do not know who is who, God does. He sees us through and through. And therefore, this passage is very important for us because Jesus is exposing the vain worship, is exposing this very lavish and and energetic and costly activities by people by religious leaders that end up in the garbage can. And I want to bring this a passage from three standpoints and their principles that Jesus is teaching us. That the vain worship is always comes from the faulty theology. It always flows from filthy heart. And only a faithful heart produces a genuine worship to God. So the main idea of this text, before we read it, I will tell you, your worship is determined by who you are. It's determined by who you are. Unless God changes our hearts, our worship is useless. So Matthew chapter 15, we read this story. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourself transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips. But their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me teaching us doctrines, the precepts of man. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, hear and understand, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but that proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. The disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. There are blind guides of, of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said to him, explain the parable for us. Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into this ma- the, the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated, but the things that proceed 
out of the mouth comes from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adult, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hand does not defile the man. The, word, the vain, vain worship comes first, as Jesus noticed, from the faulty theology, from wrong theology about God and about the law. You know, what is worship anyway? We're all engaged in worship. What is it? For some, worship is music. For some, worship is liturgy. For some, it is an experience of fellowship with one another. For some people, it is a sermon during the service. But the worship is not necessarily any of these things. You see, the meaning of worship is truly the meaning of the word. It means bow down before you something that you very value, that you value so much, something valuable to you that you would bow down your life, bow down yourself, bow down all your lifestyle before this. Worship is ascribing the value to the one who is worthy of it. And God told us that only him is valuable enough. And only him is worthy of all the praise. No other name is worthy as he is. Therefore, worship is not just a ritual. Worship is the matter of your heart, what you're valuing. And we have the object of our worship is his son, Jesus Christ. That is the same object. We may worship differently, but the object is the same. See, sometimes we are pointing to how we worship. Do we worship with the band in the morning? Do we worship with an hour of preaching? But God is concerned about what is in your heart. Are you truly value him? You can worship God with all your gifts of the Holy Spirit, but he is after our hearts. God demands our hearts, not the things that we bring. That's the most important thing that we should take out of this, that the heart is that being touched by the graces of God, willing to worship him with everything that it has. Something very valuable appeared in our life that everything else became secondary. But the Pharisees and Israel, at this moment, they didn't get the point. They didn't get the point. They thought in their theology that the law and God is not as high that they could worship it. And God said, look, you don't understand who you worship whatsoever. You don't understand that the worship of God requires not the bringing sacrifices, not the ceremonial things that you do, not obedience to the law, but it's the matter of heart. And if you don't understand that, you will be able to replace the law, the, the standards of the law with your own standards. The demand of, God, of, high, of God's worship is shown in the, in the law. 
And people with an unchanged heart will try to use the law to bring God appropriate worship. Now look what the Pharisees do with Jesus. Some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do you disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. They're concerned of how the disciples are worshiping God. And they said they are not worshiping according to the rules. When we're thinking about what are they talking about, why this tradition of the elders was so important for them that they travel about 100 miles from Jerusalem to the Lake of Galilee where Jesus was, it's because it's rooted in their understanding of God that they are able to obey and worship God according to the law of Moses. And when they fail to do so, they provide the interpretation of the law in their interpretation of Mishnah and Gemara. So they built defense around the law, helping people, common people, to obey the law and come as acceptable to God. You know, this passage, it tells us that they rebuke Jesus. They rebuke Jesus. And they said, we have provided the means of worship, but your disciples are not obeying this. In fact, in the book of Mishnah, which is interpretation of the book of Moses, five book of Moses, there are 30 chapters devoted to the clean, cleaning of vessels. 30 chapters. They were so concerned about this cleanliness that they forgot that that was only a representation of the clean heart when you come to God. And by this, they created so many rules and regulations. They, they create all this, this heavy laden and burden that no one could carry. You know, when we come to our service before God, we also must watch out what is the tradition and what is the word of God. We have our traditions. We're gathering at 10 a.m. each Sundays to worship. That is tradition. We have Hour and a half service, that is a tradition. We have preaching that lasts in about an hour, that is a tradition. We have worship band, that is a tradition. We have communion once a month, that is a tradition. We do not work on Sundays, that is tradition. We dress up for the, uh, in, a, in a church clothes on Sunday, that is a tradition. None of these strictly biblical. These are not bad until they replace the word of God itself. But when you come to Jesus with the rebuke, you have to be ready that Jesus will answer. You know, it's like if you live in a house made of glass, you don't throw stones at people, right? Because they might throw it back. And Jesus said, right back at you. He said, look, your theology is so whacked. Your theology is so faulty that you don't understand neither the word of God, neither the purpose of the word of God. And he answered and said to them, why do you yourself transgress the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? That was revolutionary. That was shocking. No one talked to the Pharisees and scribes like that. How come you are breaking the word of God? And he gave this illustration how they break how their theology is so messed up that they, by devotion of God, they deny relationship. 
He said, God said, honor your mother and father. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you said, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. And there you're no longer obligated to help your mom and dad. You know, in the self-deceived religion that is very zealous, presented with devotion to God and to men's tradition, they forgot about the relationship with their parents. That is the religion that is without relationship. That is the false religion would never bring worship to God. Jesus exposes the self-deceived devotion based on rules at the expense of relationship. You know, false religion and false worship always going to cost you relationship. You know, you'll be like that monk that's going to separate from all the people and go somewhere on the hill to spend the rest of their life along with God. And he does this at the expense of the relationship with people. That is exactly what happens. That is exactly what happens. Jesus brings 10 commandments, the heart of the law. And then he takes fifth commandment right off from the heart of the 10 commandments. And he says, look, this is all about honoring and worshiping God. This is relational commandment. You have two closest people in your life. Two most important people, they love you unconditionally. And the way how you treat them, it show how you worship God. Jesus reminds them that even saying against parents a bad word should cost you your life. That's how important it is. He said, if you want to honor God, try to honor your parents. Now, this is a high standard of the law. This is the high standard of the law. If Israel would follow that commandment, they would have a half a population right away. If we would follow in this church this commandment, we would not have nursery and and children's ministries. If we would kill children because they said a bad word against parents. You see, the high standard of the law, it was so high that the Pharisees and religious leaders, assuming that they could obey that, they want to reinterpret that with the tradition of man, and they would say, look, this is how you treat God. This is how you have a pure devotion to God when you be able to help mom with food or clothes or something else, but you say instead, just say it, that whatever would help you, parents, I, I just devoted to God. I just devoted to God. And that vow excuses you from the fifth commandment. How pious that sounds. How godly that sounds. I have given this to God. I tell you, withholding money or any other benefit from needy parents in order to give it to God is the direct disobedience to God's command because God said, honor your father and mother. And dishonoring God's word by substituting a man-made tradition for the word of God. Basic human need comes first 
with God before your religious offerings. Jesus said in Matthew 5.24, he said, if you come to the altar and to give something to God, and then you remember that you borrow something from your friend, someone has something against you. It's not just said the word, but you, you got something from him, but you never pay back, but you want to come and bring it to God, leave it, go make peace with your brother. You see, by substituting the law, Pharisees in, engage in the superficial holiness. Now they look good. Now they look pious because they give given to God the gifts and they obey the law. But in fact, all they worship is themselves because they got still the money and they still using the gifts and they look good before the people. And that all changing of the law and substituting comes because we are unable to obey the law. That is why Pharisees try to trick and to go with these loopholes around the law so that they would pretend to be God worshipers. That's why Jesus later on here in the text using quote from Isaiah and he said, you hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. Instead of humbly admitting the total fiasco of trying to follow God's simple law, we offer, often want to complicate it so that we look better. And often all the, offer, uh, the efforts fail, what do we do? We pretend that we did it. And that's what Jesus tells those leaders and shepherds of Israel, you hypocrites. When you can't obey, you reinterpret, and then you pretend that you obeyed, but you become hypocrites. Very strong word. Exact. It's the first time Jesus is so bluntly tell religious leaders that they are hypocrites. He will tell them more, much more later on, but that's the first time when he addresses the issue. And he's not just like a meek and mild Jesus here. He is strong Jesus who tells people about their hypocrisy. Why is it so important? Because to play godliness is very dangerous. You know, when we were children, sometimes we played church. We had two people choir. We had two people congregation. And we had a stool for a pulpit. We sang, we prayed, we preached, and even repented at the foot of the stool. But all of it was just to play. And some are playing today. The worst part is that this pretend church has its pretend leaders leading to a pretend worship. What a waste of time. You could pretend like you were anything. And suddenly many people play pretend like with their salvation. They play dress up on Sundays. And they look just like the saints. They sing like them. They pray like them. They even talk like them. But they are not part of them because their hearts are far away from God. Drawing near to God with their lips, but they're true in their, in their heart. They're miles away from God. And that's why Jesus said, vain worship. Vain worship. But in vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrine, the priests of men. Another word for vain 
is an idol. An idol is nothing, and worship to an idol accomplishes nothing. And if we imagine in God something like he's not, and we worship God that does not exist, it's empty worship. You know, it's like trying to harvesting salt. You know how they harvest salt? You know, there are different mines for salt, but there's one in, in California when you on the shore, there's a harvest of salt, there's a factory, and then harvest from the sea. But imagine if you would have innovative idea that you get the bags of salt and plow the field and then just sow it in the field waiting in the fall that it will produce harvest of salt. Wouldn't you look stupid then? Worship with the wrong view of God, it's very dangerous and useless. That is why we want to replace the law of God. We want to replace with anything else because we cannot obey it. I want to spend a little bit of time just to tell you how they misuse the purpose of the law. And it's helpful for us. It is very helpful for us. If you never heard this, you, you, you should maybe take notes that there is a, a specific purpose for the law that Christians sometimes misunderstand. Why was the law given in the first place? Why was this whole commandments was for? I'll tell you, there are threefold reasons. Number one is to demonstrate the perfect character of God. That's number one. Pharisees didn't get that. They thought God was a little bit more common and down the earth. See, Bible talks about the law as a mirror of God, mirror of God's grace and justice. And the law in the first place, in the primary place, it is an excellent representation of who God is in his holy character. That's primarily function of the law to be as a mirror of God and his character. Now, in this mirror, we'll also see ourselves. But if it does not represent God, it's not a good mirror. But God's law is perfect because it is perfectly represents who he is. It is good because it perfectly tells us who God is. The law tells us, you tells us straight up that God, what God's will is and what his standards are and what his character is and never changes because God never changes. That is why psalmist would say the law, of, the law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes and rejoices the heart. Why would anybody rejoice at the law? There's only one reason, because it t- tells us and shows us the face of our loving Father. That is why. You know, unbelieving world does not see that when they see the law. They, they, they don't see that. They don't see when they, they hear the gospel either. When we preach to them the most famous word, John 3:16, for God so loved the world, all they see and they hear, for God so hated the world. 
And maybe it's our fault because we don't represent God who he really is in his full entirety. But the first one is the purpose of the lie is to show the perfect character of God. The second is to kill everyone who does not obey. That's the law. That's why the law is to judge, to judge, to judge. Romans 2.12 tells us, for those who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, but those who have sinned under the law will perish under the law. Galatians 3.10 says, no one could be justified by the law, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. The purpose of the law, if you try to obey it, it is to kill you. Imagine if you, if you misunderstand the point of the law, like, oh, I thought the law was to obey and to present myself perfect before God. You will end up in hell because the law is perfect. One step away from the law and you're dead. The law is good because it kills. It represents God. But the third the third purpose for the law is to show us our dreadfulness, dreadfulness of our sins, our inability to accomplish the standard of God and to lead us to the one who can. To lead us to Christ. Romans 3.20 says, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Galatians 3.24 says, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. The law exposes us and says, well, you are not able to trust, stop trying, and then run to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. You see, God wants our heart worship. When we're a where we adore him for what he has done for us. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. He wants us trust in Christ and not trust, trust in ourselves. That is the purpose of the law. And as Christians, we always have this purpose. Now we have no obligation to the law, therefore, because we have all obligation to Christ. How does the law, this broken spirit look like? It's interesting, Tim will preach next Sunday, but I'll just allude to that. The, the next section is, is just a great picture of this brokenness of the spirit that does not rely on the law, but rely on Jesus. Remember that Canaanite woman who has the daughter demon possessed, she came to Jesus and she pleaded with him, please, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. She didn't go to the law and say, look how I was obedient to the law. She probably didn't even know much about the law. She didn't rebuke Jesus when he said and called her dog. Oh, you're not merciful enough. She pleaded with him. She knew that there's no hope in the law or in her righteousness because she appealed only to the mercy of Jesus. She was so broken on one hand that she didn't present herself with anything else, but she was so bold on the other hand that she said, look, even the dogs eating the crumbs under the food, under the table of the masters. She appealed to the mercy of Jesus, believing that he cares and that he can, but she can't. 
And he said, I praise you, woman. Praise your faith. Faith. Now, in our passage, when we'll read in verses 12 to 14, we see a very opposite picture. The Pharisees hearing this from Jesus, they were offended. You know, the disciples say, well, Jesus, excuse me, maybe you're going the wrong direction right now. We need an ally with the religious leaders here. You know, please, they got offended. What are you going to do about this? And this is a sad story that Jesus tells them, sad parable, the story of, about religious leaders. He said, do you know, they said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended that they, were, they heard the statement? But he answered and said, every plan which my father, heavenly father, did not plan shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. The story is about religious leaders who don't understand grace. The plant represents people in leadership. Like a plant produces the fruit, so the leadership produces people with their beliefs. The plant that was planted by God is Christ, and he will produce gospel-like people. The plant that was planted by devil, they will produce law, obedient, trying to observe people, self-righteous people. It reminds me of the parable of the wheat and the tares. And Jesus said, let them be. Let them be. Do not mingle with them. Do not be concerned about them. They're not of you. They're not of your father. Essentially, it's the same warning as he told disciples elsewhere. Beware of yeast of Pharisees. They do not know grace. They only know the law. And they deceive themselves that they could obey it and please God. They're not your people. And they are dangerous Teachers, teachers who cannot answer the question, what is the purpose of the law, is a danger to the congregation. Teachers who teach salvation by works or sanctification by the law, they're false teachers. They know nothing about God's grace. Beware of dogs, Jesus said, Paul said it later. Beware this hypocritical religion that concerns itself with the love of self and looking good before people. Separate from that religion. That is what Judaism became in the first century. That is what some churches became today. The second point, briefly, worship of a filthy heart produces a vain worship. In 15 to 20, we see Jesus is exposing the fruit and the root. The fruit of this unbelieving heart always will be sin. And it's interesting how Peter, in his repertoire, he says, Jesus, I know we're kind of past through this already, but can you go back and tell us about the parable about the food? Can you explain what do you mean? What do you mean? Peter is still thinking about the food, interesting. But Jesus' reaction, the word notice, and he said, do you not understand? Are you still lacking? I'm not just talking about the food. I'm talking about the heart. I'm talking about the heart. No food can defile people. No food can defile us, even if we eat dirt for the next 24 hours. You're, it doesn't go into the heart. It goes into the stomach and just flushes away. Because food is only physical. It can only affect physical. It cannot defile the inner person. 
You know, whatever you do on the outside, on the outside religious ceremonies are not cleansing you on the inside. They're useless. Physical pollution, no matter how corrupt, cannot cause spiritual or moral pollution. On the other hand, physical cleanliness will not fix your internal heart. The filthy heart, that is the problem. And Jesus lists seven of these sins. He said, but these things that proceed out of the mouth came from the heart. Those are defiled, man. You know, instead of thinking and, and being occupied with the outward religion and ceremony, instead of thinking how we're going to look before God, we should have been occupied with the transformation of our inner heart. And here are the things, evil things, murder, adulteries, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are the things where defile the man, but not, but to eat with unwashed hand does not defile a man. And Jesus said, the root of the problem is the heart. The heart is so deceitful that it doesn't even see those things in it. It just tries to cover it up by all means. The heart does has not knowledge of the grace of God, would always deceive itself, thinking that it is all right. It is fine. But look, Jesus said, out of the heart. This defilement is not just a splash on your shoes of dirt. It is just go much deeper. The heart is who you really are. The heart is the center of your life. The heart is who you really, really are. The place of manhood, where manhood maintain his throne. This is who you really are in your heart. When I look at you, I do not know who you are, but you do because you know your heart. And what a terrible statement it is that out of the very center of who you are comes out very nasty things, evil thoughts, wickedness, blasphemy, and like. The heart is full of sinful pollution. And this is an inside job, so to speak. The root of the problem is that we are wicked on the inside, and we need a restoration on the inside. Most people think, I didn't know that, that the worm in the apple comes from the outside and just destroy the apple. So when you eat it, it you just find it that it's polluted. But actually, during the spring, when the apple is just a little apple, the little fruit flies flying around, find the apple that she likes, drill a little hole, plant her eggs on the inside, and the worm is born on the inside and lives there eating and munching on the apple. It is from the inside. The eggs hatched and a tiny little worm becomes railroad worms and maggots. That's what Jesus said. It's not pollution from the outside that corrupting you. It is who you are. It proceeds from you, from the very center of you. And he's talking about unregenerated man. The man who is not touched by grace, who does not understand God's grace. And that's it. Jesus leaves us with this. That's it. He said, that's the problem. 
That is the problem. You have engaged yourself in the vain worship. And he leaves. He just stabbed the human heart with the dagger of law and leave it there. He didn't preach the gospel yet. He didn't give us a solution yet. There's nowhere to go. There's no help to find. Unless you see that the help is in Jesus himself. Jesus didn't preach grace yet. He preached the condemnation for self-reliant religion. So what do we do on this side of the cross? With five minutes left. We go to the third point, worship of a faithful person. That is what acceptable to God. Very briefly, if you go to Galatians, please go with me. And we're going to go look at two verses, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. I'll explain and I'll give a couple of illustrations so we could understand it better. This is an amazing verse. After describing the deeds of the flesh, in chapter 5, verse 22, 23, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You see, the worship of God is produced by the Spirit of God in us. It is not your production, per se. It is production of the spirit in you. He has to change you. He has to change the heart on the inside so that you'll be able to worship. He's changing our inner man from this corrupt and filthy into a beautiful creation. And he produces these fruits in us. Jesus told us before when he talked to Nicodemus, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You see, when confronted with this sinful reality, David prayed, hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquities. Create in me clean heart, O God, renew in me a new spirit. He understood the problem. See, God sees what happens, but also God works in us. He works in us. And, and these are the fruits of the Spirit. It's not, it says, uh, the fruit of Jan and fruit of Mike, or fruit of Tim. He said, the fruits of the Spirit is love. It is the spiritual production. Is my reliance on the Spirit will produce those things. I could conceal, I could hide my sinfulness, but unless God touches me with his grace and give me this love, I will not be able even to relate because I finish with this, that worship to God can only be done through understanding of his love. The worship to God proceeds and, and flows only from believing and understanding and engaging and growing in how much he loved us. And that's the fruit of the spirit that would reflect exactly the love of God in your life. And it's important. Incredibly what it says in verse 23, that against such things, there is no law. Have you thought about this phrase? Against such things, there is no law. What are you talking about? 
He's talking about that the worship of God is no longer an obligation or regulated by the law. There is no law for love. There is no law. Love is no longer regulated by the law. Jesus didn't tell us, keep my commandment and then I know that you love me. No, he didn't tell us. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We always put the horse behind the cart. If your heart is not in love with God, it's not regenerated by God. And if it's not, you will have a problem of living for him. If, however, your life is characterized by the things of verse 22 and 23, then you have been touched by grace. Sometimes we're asking a wrong question. How do we love God? How to learn to love God? For some reason, after preaching on God's love, we feel obligated to preach on how to love him and give us some principles and rules and regulations. But I'll tell you, we must preach all powerful love of Jesus and his immense gravity of his love will carry us through to obedience, not in commandments, not in regulations, not in spiritual disciplines, but in his overwhelming love, there's a power for obedience to him. Can you teach a person to love God? You can't. You cannot. It's impossible task. It's a supernatural act of the spirit. The heart either loves God or improves in love or does not love it, does not care. You cannot teach me to love snakes. You can't. I hate snakes. I don't know why there are more deadly animals over there, but I don't care much about them, but I hate snakes. You cannot teach me to hate snakes, to, to love snakes. But I'll give you a positive illustration, and we'll finish at this. Can you teach to love God? Imagine for a moment a teenage girl who's growing in a Christian family in his very, very godly household. Say her name is Isabella. How can you teach Isabella to have a motherly love? Where does this love come from? You could teach her from the books. You could show her by example. Maybe she could be engaged in the ministry to infants or orphans. She could visit childcare. But how does she learn to love? Now, she will have a lot of knowledge about how to love, but not necessarily to love. And then one day she gets married. She grows up, and one day she conceives. And at the moment when that baby pops out out of her womb and placed on her chest, the love activates. The love activates. As soon as the baby touches her body, the love activates. At that moment, she does not need books. She does not need seminars. She does not need teaching from the pulpit. She knows what the love is. She loves intuitively. She loves instantly. And she loves unconditionally. She will not ask at that moment, how does this love act? 
Can you teach me how does this love act to this baby? She will not go on asking how much of the need of this baby I should fulfill. Should I fulfill only big needs or small needs? She will not ask, is getting up three times at night would be enough to hush this baby? She would not ask, how much should I sacrifice for this baby? She will take care of this little one for 24-7. And she will not ask, maybe eight hours will suffice. I'm just going to do my shift eight hours and that's it. Your baby on your own. Is hurting this baby, is betraying this baby, mistreating this baby is allowed by the law? What law? What law would you ask? What are you talking about? The love is in the house. She would not need to learn it because she knows it in her heart. How come you say? Because the moment that baby was born, the love was born in her heart. And there appears an extra room in her heart. And it would stay always. And when her baby would be no baby at all at 30 years old, it would still be her baby. That's what John in chapter 227, First John says, as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. The God teaches us how to love him. And he shows us that he loves us so much. See how great the love of the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. You see, God has fixed the broken watch. The watch that would not give the proper time or proper worship. The ultimate watchmaker restored his creation, making something beautiful that would engage in the heart, from the heart, full obedience, and experience full joy of God's presence. And now we tick, and now we talk for his glory. Amen. Father, we thank you for this time with you and with your word. And we pray, may the word of grace encourage our hearts. And may the law lead us to Christ. May it show us your perfect character. May it show us the wages of sin, but may it show us Christ. Christ in whom we live. Christ who fills our heart with love. Christ who carries us through and the very sad moments of our lives and, and happy, which carries us through when we sin and when we repent. When we feel good and we feel bad, we know that your love is unchanging. And we know that intuitively, instantly, and know that your love is unconditional. It doesn't depend on us. It depends on your character. In Christ's name we pray, amen.